It was my book. Just for context, it's um, this story has come from a book off of my bookshelf that um, I, stole. I gifted to Joe um, when him and his lovely wife were up here. And you agreed to let me is, take it. I was taking it anyway. I'm this is lie. the story. <laughs> this is the story. Can we do the what three words again? Let's bring that back. I, ca- I can't do the what three words. I haven't prepared them. You know how tightly scripted this is. I never okay. go off script. Can I do them? <laughs> if what you're going to guess the three words based on the picture on the front of the book, go go for it. Yes. Blood. Yes. Georgian. No. Victorian. Stuart. Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. And white cover. <laughs> <laughs> hey up. I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Elizabethan era. And I feel like now I have to say the first Elizabethan era, because we've had two. This is true. Mm. Do you reckon that's what it would be known as? I think it's long enough. Eventually. If we can, yeah, if we have the Victorian era, we've got to have the second Elizabethan era. Mm. Because in the 1590s, England became involved in the biggest conflict that would take place at any point during the reign of Elizabeth I. The Spanish Armada. Oh, no. Nothing to do with the continent. The Nine Years' War fought in Ireland against the Irish. Of course. Who had the audacity, the brass neck... To resist the English taking over their country. How dare they? I'm saying that in a sarcastic manner. Don't come for me. (laughs) At its height, there were over 18,000 English troops fighting in Ireland, which is a full third more than were mobilised in any other war during the period. I mean, that just proves that the Irish put up a bloody good fight. Oh, yes. Well, they were fighting for their livelihoods and you know what it was like when we started taking over we're like you can have that rocky bit over there where nothing mm. grows that yeah. can be your bit we'll um, have the fertile lands yeah. thank you we'll have all the yeah. farmlands you've been cultivating for generations and you can go over there where there's stone wailing wind and desolation that's you be gone savage but the war it, it wasn't as easy as the english had thought and it was so draining on their resources that the Spanish believed that there was a good chance that the Irish could actually win out. And they were so convinced of this that they decided they might as well pitch in and help. And they sent an armada to try and support the Irish Catholics in their cause. Is that why the armada was sent? Oh, no, this was a different armada. Oh, OK, fine. It seems like during this period of history, uh, the first go-to response of the Spanish... Armada! <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll collect some boats. Philip, we've, we've talked about this. Send the ships! No, Philip! We, our shipbuilders are working flat out. You're, you're this sending too many ships Philip to so many the places. Second of Spain. This is King Philip II of Spain. Yeah, but the, the Armada didn't actually ever reach Ireland. It failed because they always failed. No matter who it was sending the Armada, they always seemed to fail. It's because the British weather is so rubbish. It just sends people <laughs> into rocks. Yeah, um, that's what happened to the first Armada, as we, we our, learned. Our weather is mighty. Back off. Yeah, we are very, very spawny and lucky when it comes to the weather. Yeah. Which is why we're so obsessed with it, because it has been our number one sort of military. We do talk... Uh, uh, do you genuinely think it is just a British thing, or do you think it's just something that 
humans discuss all the time because I, I think it's a universal human experience so it's something that you can immediately discuss with someone and they'll but have we it we talk about it a lot i probably mention it about three or four times a day mm. at least i think it's because you know a lot of us had rather repressed parents who couldn't show love so they could only speak on safe topics <laughs> sunny outside you'll need your wellies but what that really meant was i'm bloody proud of you son <laughs> you are my sunshine Anyway, back to the Irish being massacred. Over the course of the struggle, it is estimated that at least 100,000 people died, with the vast majority of these being Irish peasants who ended up starving as a result of the English commander's scorched earth policy, which inevitably caused widespread famine. So is it just like it sounds? They just went and burnt as they the t- land, yeah. the crops and stuff? As they were travelling across the land, they were just getting rid of everything so that um, the Irish armies couldn't be reinforced with um, supplies. Right, do you know what? This explains so much. As a as an English chap sort of growing up, I uh, wrongly so, before I travelled to these countries, I was like, oh, why do they hate us? Like, I've not done anything <laughs> wrong. Like, I don't get it. Like, oh, they're always whinging and moaning about this, that and the other. And then you look at the history books and you're like, it is so ingrained how calculated and abusive the English were towards their neighbours to all sides uh, and usually use really brutal tactics. It is scarred it was the land. It was really bad. And do you know the worst bit about it? I don't know if it's the worst bit, but at the end of this, um, all the uh, leaders of the Irish... I don't want to call it rebellion, resistance. Mm. They were all pardoned. Because they realised that if they tried to carry on this war, they were going to sort of expose themselves to, to European powers because it was so draining. So it didn't it didn't achieve full conquest of Ireland. I think what they probably assumed they were going to do is go over there really quickly, oh, yeah, sweep yeah. sweep everyone under British control, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah. Four weeks, bish bash bosh. Yeah, done. That's, that's a great new addition to our budding empire. It was a shit show. But... The majority of this shit show was in the future, when, in the spring of 1595, a 27-year-old cavalryman called Edmund Blood decided to join the Queen's forces and set sail for Dublin. What a brilliant name. Edmund Blood. I might change my last name. Just a Blood. Ollie Blood. Ollie Blood. No, it sounds a bit gangster, doesn't it? Ooh, change your first name. Blood Green. He is the Hulk. Anyway, Blood was expecting an easy opportunity to grab some plunder. And it's a measure of his ignorance of the situation that he was sailing into that he decided to take his heavily pregnant wife with him. Mrs. Blood. Mm, Mrs. Blood. Miss Blood. (laughs) She didn't stay heavily pregnant for long, though, because it was a particularly violent crossing. Oh, no. And it caused her to go into labour. Oh, okay, fine. I thought you were going to say she lost the baby. Oh, no. no. She almost lost it overboard, but she did (laughs) deliver it successfully. Um, And because baby had been born at sea, Edmund decided to give him the very normal name for an Englishman, Neptune Blood. If you're born at sea, what Mm. nationality are you? I think you still take it from your parents. So he would have been English. Okay. The family arrived in Dublin, and Edmund Blood got down to some soldiering. However... It quickly became clear that the Irish were organised and very, very willing to die for their cause. He was actually having to do some proper fighting and people Mm. were fighting back. 
After seeing an English column of nearly 2,000 men ambushed and defeated during the Battle of Clontibret, I hope I get that right. Is that in Ireland? Yeah. Edmund Blood decided to resign his commission, so he left the army. He's like, no, that looked like lots of people died. Yeah, I'm not Um, playing this game. mm, I I was only here if there was minimal risk, and it seems like the risk is moderate, so no thank you. (laughs) Moderate to high. Mm. A risk assessment would have been flagging red. Oh yeah, definitely. There was, you know, it would have been needs improvement in terms of health and safety. But instead of returning to England, he opted to buy some land in Killinaboy, County Clare, that included a castle. Yes. Today, Killinaboy is also the location of a place called Glanquin House, which you may remember as the parochial house from Father Ted. (gasps) I love Father Ted. To anyone that doesn't know what Father Ted is, it was comedy gold from the 90s. Yes, it was... um... A gentle setup of the Catholic Church, let's say. I think. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, the the poor chap died, didn't he? Like the series wasn't finished at all. Like there was going to be more yeah. seasons and series, um, but the the main guy died. But I almost think that that made it more legendary because there was less there material. Were just three seasons, yeah. Yeah. Actually, only Ardlow Hanlon's alive from the original cast now. Oh really? What is that? Um, what's his face? Um, Dougal. Father yeah. Dougal, because Father Jack died, Father Ted died, and Mrs Doyle died, didn't she? Sadly, so the, of the original oh, four, he's, she? Still, he's the last. When did she standing. die? A few years ago, probably twenty sixteen. Everyone that, died that in twenty sixteen. Oh no, David Bowie and Alan Rickman in one mm. week. It was tragic. Oh, it was a bad, bad year. It, it was. Anyway, he bought this land and he got it very cheap, as the people selling it to him didn't really have the right to do so, because <laughs> okay. the original owners had been kicked off it. So he he was basically, you know, making a bit of um, a killing thanks to the war. Yeah. He then began building himself a fortune by stopping ships that were passing along the coast near his castle and forcing them to pay a toll for safe passage. Today, this practice is more commonly known as extortion. Piracy. Yeah, pretty much. It was it was the old nice ship you've got there. Be a shame if something was to happen to it. <laughs> As they're like. Sort of sharpening their knives. And yeah. So maybe if you give us a third of your cargo, nothing will happen and you'll get to where you're going. Of course, if you don't give us a third of your cargo, whew, it gets very stormy around here. Black eyes and broken ships. Naturally, with these kinds of business practices, Edmund Blood later became an MP. Oh, of course. He had a second son after Neptune called Thomas. <laughs> It's gone from Neptune to Thomas. I know. There's no theme. I assume Thomas was just born on terra firma. And Neptune... <coughs> probably the plan was always to call Neptune Thomas. But then he felt that he had to give some kind of um, sacrifice to the gods for allowing them safe passage to Dublin. So I like, feel like if you have like more than one child, you have to... Not only do you have to think about what name you like but you need to does does it sound right with their siblings name yeah we've we've had conversations about this they need to come from the same box yeah 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 for sure if you have like jack and then you have someone called thaladimus it doesn't work it sounds like you hate your second child mm. you get a lot of people who have who are like tom ben like the free letter oh well thing. we we have um tom joe jack and harry that's my brother's. Oh, and well, me. there you so go. That's it. It's a very. It. We're all in the same box. Yeah. There. 
But yeah, I agree. It is something you do have to consider. And mm. in this instance, I don't think Edmund did. It's like <laughs> Neptune, Thomas. <laughs> I think he had another kid called William. So it really did sort of. Um, I mean, Thomas and William go yeah. together. Neptune. It's like he's the one with the story. There's a story behind that name. The other two are just. I bet he went by something else, didn't he? Like Nathaniel or something. He just went by Neppy. <laughs> no, apparently he always went by Neptune. He was quite proud of it because it, it came with that story. It's a good story. But Thomas, he eventually had another son of his very own, and he called his son Thomas as well. So you had Thomas Sr. and Thomas Jr. Yeah. Thomas Jr. being born early in the year 1618. He was born at a place called Sarney in County Meath. Okay. And after nearly 40 years of exploitation and hoarding wealth, the Bloods at that time were doing so well that Thomas Jr. was made a Justice of the Peace at the age of only 22. So he oh. was already connected. He could get political positions. So this is Edward Blood's grandson? Edward Blood's grandson. Edward right. Blood has done such a good job of taking over local businesses, um, you know, schmoozing with the right people, getting influence, that he's mm. able to put his grandson into just a, a you know, good government position. Uh, amazing. Almost immediately. Uh-huh. As a reward for becoming... Justice of the Peace, which I'm sure he earned. King Charles gave the young blood a barony, which included houses, quarries, orchards, gardens, and an entire hamlet called Suppercock. Can I uh, just guess that none of these were really his to give away, or he was just exploiting the people that had this property? Yeah, he. the king was basically going, I want some of your property, and his subjects were going, okay... And then he was handing that to, to um, young Thomas Blood and going, they are. Well, well done. Well done yeah. for taking that job that was offered to you based on no qualifications. It's quite the signing bonus. I'm sure you'll agree. Mm, yeah. And it was not like this was a one-off land grant for the family. All the time the Bloods were getting given a bit of land over here or joint ownership in this bit of land over here. They had bits and bots and parcels of land dotted all over Ireland. I think that would really stress me out. Like, I'd want everything to be in the same place. Well, you you didn't have to manage any of it. Basically, all it meant was... You could Once a year, yeah, a bloke would have to come to your house and give you some money. Okay. So so... every every time they made a land grant, it was like, and who will be bringing the the value of those lands? Oh, it's a gentleman called Squires. Okay. And then on the 1st of January, Squires would have to rock up through the snow with a bag of money. There you are, sir. There's all the money that you've earned. Well done, Just you, sir. F- for nothing. I lost two toes on the way here, sir. Don't have any shoes. Uh, would they speak like that in Ireland? No, but I'm not going to affect an Irish accent because I do not want to offend anyone. Not this close to Christmas. No. No. Maybe in the new year I'll try. <laughs> after I've had some It's lessons. a whole new rewrite in the, yeah. in the new year. In the new year, in all the episodes, I'm going to become very offensive and stereotypical in the voices that I do. Yeah. I think that's only fair. Yeah. You've been PC for far too long. But what I'm saying is, the king, King Charles, he looked after the Bloods. So naturally, when the Civil War began in 1642, Thomas Blood, he only waited around six months to see which side appeared to be winning before he declared for the Royalists in the spring of 1643. Uh, uh, I know where this is going. Do you? Well, I think so. Yeah, I do. No, you, I think. No, you don't. I think I do. Oh, you, you foolish fool. <laughs> we'll see. 
He was present at the Siege of Sherborne Castle in 1645, where he experienced 16 days of being blasted at by cannon before the castle was surrendered to Sir Thomas Fairfax, who was alongside alongside Oliver Cromwell. He was like the leader of the New Model Army. And many people think that maybe he should have become the, uh, you know, the head of the Republic, rather than rather Mr. than Oliver, Cromwell. because he was a little bit less austere. Although he was still, you know, like um, he was still a Protestant, and he still, mm. you know, had some of those leanings. He wasn't quite as puritanical as Oliver Cromwell. Oh, and, Oliver Cromwell was hardcore. Yeah, he was hardcore, and people are saying, well, if only Fairfax had done the job, maybe, maybe the the British, you know, the the Real English and the stayed. Yeah, they would have been a bit more down with the whole Republican idea if it had been. Wasn't Oliver like Cromwell's son like really like flamboyant and just like really like Richard? Uh, this, yeah, Dicky Cromwell. Wasn't he just just a bit of a gentle character? He wasn't designed for rule. Let's say that. I mean, he was no. so ineffectual that he was allowed to come back to the country. And, uh, yeah, and live under and monarchy live yeah. because <laughs> they were like, well, no one's going to get behind Dicky. He's looking him. <laughs> I can imagine him as um, you know in Blackadder, and you've got like the oh, Prince Percy. Regent. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 like that, and just like really like uh, camp is not the correct term, I know, but you know what I mean. He uh, was just somebody who's who enjoyed the fact that his dad was ruling the country, and then everyone's like, well, "Now it's your turn." He's like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> no, this seems really dangerous. I don't want to. <laughs> I want the money. I just don't want to do the work." So, you know, like a lot of people who are born into privilege, it's like, oh, right, totally, you know, not willing to make the sacrifice to stay there, but expecting to stay there anyway. Blood moved on. He was um, ransomed in a prisoner exchange or whatever after the after the siege had ended. Uh, and he was part of the royalist force that snuck in and retook Pontefract Castle in 1648 during the second civil war, civil war harder. In Yorkshire? Yep. Where the cake comes from. Uh, it is where Pontefract cake comes from, yeah. They use... And Haribo. Is it's... that right? I don't know where Haribo's based. I'm pretty sure that's Pontefract or Wakefield. One of them. It's around there. I've seen the factory. It's grim. You would never eat a Haribo again if you saw it. Wow. Kids and grown-ups love it, so... It's bleak. <laughs> the bleak world of Haribo. <laughs> is that why they don't do Haribo factory tours like they do at the Cadbury's <laughs> World? It's just like... No, it's all grey. Yeah, it's grim. Grey and grim and dirty, and we don't like it. So yeah, he was in Pontefract Castle, uh, and they used it as a base of operations to try and disrupt the parliamentarian forces in the area. Okay, fine, that seems like a sensible location to Mm. do it from. And by disrupt, I mean attempt to kidnap and execute the leader of the parliamentarian force that was besieging them, Colonel Thomas Rainbow. I was going to say, that wasn't Cromwell, was it? No. No. Cromwell was busy in London sort of um, getting ready to behead the king at this yeah. point. But yes, they they were in Pontefract Castle and one of the royalist commanders had been captured and they went, well, what we need to do is we need to capture a parliamentarian of equal or greater rank and then we can do a prisoner swap. And the guy yeah, that they fair. singled out as a good kidnap victim would be Colonel Thomas Rainborough. Under the leadership of Captain William Polden, four royalists containing blood as part of this little crew, went to a pub in Doncaster where Rainbow was staying. And they walked right up to the front door and said they had a message for the colonel from Oliver Cromwell himself. <gasps> so they lied. They lied. And apparently the concept of lying was brand new because they were immediately just let into the into the inn. 
and told where <laughs> Rainbow's room was. This is the days before, like, ID. Yeah. Can I see your ID, please? But not only were they told where he was, they were allowed four blokes to go and see him completely unescorted. So this is an inn that's full of soldiers, and they let these guys in through the front door, despite the fact they have no papers to say that they're, you know, a member of the Parliamentarian Forces. All they've got is they've gone... We've got a message from Oliver. <laughs> We've got a message from Oliver. Maybe they just Oliver. thought they wouldn't be that stupid to like just four of them walk into yeah, a it's a it's park suicide. With all these soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever the whatever the reason, they got to Rainbow's room. They stormed in, grabbed Rainbow, grabbed the lieutenant that he'd been talking strategy to, and they forced them out of the pub. Again, I don't know how they got out of the pub. Maybe there was a back door but they managed oh, to get them God. out towards their waiting horses. So they, 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 they'd done it. They they'd definitely it. taken him hostage. Now they just had to get him away, and the prisoner swap could happen. Everything would be hunky-dory. At this point, though, Rainbow, he realised that they were literally only four blokes. So when they grabbed him and started bundling him out, he probably expected that the entire pub had been kind of taken over, that there yeah, was yeah, an yeah. entire battalion of men ready to escort like fight yeah but he looks around he's like there's there's literally no one else here there's these four blokes and behind me i have an inn full of my soldiers so he just thought you know what i'm gonna shout my blokes over yeah. they're gonna rescue me so he started making a big noise and a fuss turned out to be a mistake though <gasps> did they kill him yeah even though he was literally a hostage for a swap and the reason that they decided they were gonna have to take a hostage is because if oh. they didn't their commander would be killed they just panicked and stabbed him in the neck. <laughs> well, I bet that went down really well. It, yeah, it went down perfectly. Because as he was falling to the ground, sort of bleeding from a neck wound, they also stabbed him in the stomach. So it wasn't what, <laughs> what you'd call a clean kill. So surely the soldiers by this point would have clocked what was going on. Oh yeah, they were they were running over to try and help him. Um but the four blo- the four royalists managed to get on their horses and they they <sighs> rode away sharpish, and you can imagine they got back and it's like, so how did it go? Mm. <laughs> A There's qualified been an win. Issue. <laughs> yeah. On the plus side, we did get to Rainbow. On the negative, if they weren't going to kill our commander before, They're they definitely now. are now because we. Oh yeah, they're totally going to do it now, aren't they? They've just they've basically set up their own side to be murdered mm. and would you believe that this straight up murder because that's what it was this was you know outside of the uh-huh. uh, the niceties of war yeah it did which makes me laugh there's like rules yeah to it but you know that's that's way out of bounds you're pretending to be someone you're not you're sneaking mm. into someone's room i mean i don't know you might have been half undressed you might have been getting ready to go bed exactly exactly you drag him out in just his trousers and then stab him in the neck and stomach and run off. That's not cricket. That's not the way you should fight a war. Boo on them. But despite that murder, they weren't able to prevent the execution of King Charles I in the January of 1649. I wonder if that almost pushed... No, I, I mean, obviously, like the king is like the highest of the high. Mm. But I wonder if that pushed it more because they were like, well, look what these savages have done to our side so we're going to take ultimate revenge and I, that king is going i don't know I, I think as you get towards the end of any conflict both sides kind of you know it, it escalates in terms of um this the harshness and you think about 
um when the nazi when the nazis knew that they were losing how the the yeah the horror kind of ramped up towards the end but similarly when you know we were getting towards the end and we knew that the war was ending soon we sent all those bombing raids across to major german cities like dresden and we didn't yeah. need to do that it was yeah. just oh war might. rules still here so we'll be able to get away with really punishing them yeah you know if we wait until they've signed a surrender we're not going to be able to absolutely fuck their Annihilate shit Annihilate them yeah and it's yeah it's kind of understandable because you've had to keep that hatred going in order to convince people to fight mm-hmm. and it's it's difficult to just turn that off i oh, guess yeah, for, for sure it's easy to hate somebody you've never met as well isn't it yeah i i hate several people i haven't met on a daily basis thomas blood took the opportunity of the death of his king to reassess his loyalties. He watched as Oliver Cromwell led a force of 12,000 men to Ireland and heard about the massacre of 3,000 in Drogheda, followed in short order by the massacre of 3,500 in Wexford. And he decided he'd rather be a person holding a sword than being stabbed by one. So he swapped sides. In early 1650, he switched sides. Mm. Yeah. And he helped to crush the Irish rebellion as a parliamentarian soldier. We call that glory hunting well yes and i think part of it was um trying to protect his assets uh because obviously if he was a royalist all of his lands in ireland once the parliamentarians have finished suppressing that rebellion uh would be going right well we're going to take all of your lands you're going to forfeit all of that so yeah it was either i jump on the winning side at this point or i will be destitute so he wasn't loyal to the king at he, he was loyal, he was to, loyal to, to himself to the bloods and to the land yeah. the Bloods have managed to scrape together. It's whoever's convenient to give me that land. Although, to be fair, I guess you don't know what you would do in that situation in, in, in conflicts and war and stuff. So mm. you, you're either going to have to go onto the winning side or you're going to reap the consequences. Well, so. he, he definitely got some consequences, but they were all positive at first. Mm. Because after the, um, the rebellion had been suppressed, in the Act of Settlement that was made law in 1652, Blood gained lots more land in Ireland. Lots more wealth. So it really I wonder why they didn't turn around and look at him and be like, well, actually, you were on that side before, so you're not getting nothing. Well, they probably looked at it as like the more royalists who come over to our cause that we sort of accept into the fold, the less people there are there to foment um, disquiet and disruption. And, you know, if we, oh, if we can bring I people over to our them. side with favours it's actually much less risky for us than if we try to do it with uh, a sword. I wouldn't trust them, though. Like, they've been on the other side. Yeah, I I guess that's true. But we don't know how how much influence Blood had. He he was given a load of land um, and kind of left to his own device, but I don't think he was brought into the inner circle. I don't think they trusted him with anything uh, in terms of helping to run the New Republic. An arm's length. Yeah. You stay over there in Ireland and just run your little business... Run your lands and just we'll say quiet. no more. Yeah. yeah. So long as you don't raise up a rebellion, we'll leave you well alone. Because yeah. let's face it, you're from an English Protestant landowning family. Yeah. So really, we kind of do need you as a buffer against those Irish Catholics who we've pushed even further back into, you know, yes. the west of Ireland and, yes, and all the yes. bits. In 1650, Thomas Blood celebrated the breaking of one oath by making another. This time, it was a marriage oath. Okay. He wed himself to 17-year-old Lancashire lass Mary Holcroft, who How just old was he? he was 32. So nearly okay. double the age of this uh-huh. Mary Holcroft. 
but she also just so happened to be the first child of a very, very wealthy Lancashire landowner. So it's a very profitable match, or it, yes. it was supposed to be. In the event when the old bloke died, all the other kids didn't like the idea of Thomas Blood taking the money, so there was litigation for years and years and years. So he didn't actually reap the benefits, but at the time it seemed like a very good match. Uh-huh. The following year, the new couple baptised their first child. Okay. He was a boy, so naturally... Thomas. Yep, he was another Thomas. Thomas <laughs> Junior Junior. The third Thomas. And for a while, things were growing great for Thomas Blood, who was at the high point of his land ownership, having around 2,500 acres under his control at this point. It's a lot nice. of land. That is a lot of land. Yeah. It's, it's the size of a, a good-sized American cattle ranch. That he just... So an, an acre is around the size of a football pitch, is that right? I think it was that a hectare. I don't know. I, it, this would be about four miles square. He owned so. Oh, I can I can do that. Yeah. Okay, fine. You'd oh, have that's a lot. A, a sort of a moderate sized town of about hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. That he owned the equivalent of that. It's bigger than where I live. Mm. Oh, it's <laughs> much bigger than Gerben. Yeah. Then, just when everything seemed to have fallen perfectly, in sixteen fifty eight, Oliver Cromwell died. <gasps> And things started Port, to go downhill pretty fast. Yeah, I think it's only wart, let's be fair. It was a biggie. It was. It was very prominent. Yeah, but it, I don't think it was lots and lots of warts. It was more the size of the, the wart rather the than the amount. Yeah. Yeah. The newly restored Charles II rewarded the Irish for their support by allowing them to make a new act of settlement in 1662. This one said that anyone who had received land grants as a result of Oliver Cromwell needed to give it back. Uh, and when they were figuring this out, they didn't take into account the fact that some of the land blood had had predated um, his... Oh, no. <laughs> so he lost it. He was almost immediately bankrupted, essentially. Uh, which was hard to take because, you know, by this point, he's in his 40s. He's in his yeah, 40s and yeah. suddenly he's bankrupt. Starting again. Mm. Well, he did have to start again, and he responded to this in what could be considered quite an extreme manner. I'll leave you to decide. Okay. Thomas Blood decided that in order to right this wrong, all he needed to do was to seize control of the entirety of Ireland. I, I mean, if the English have been trying to do it since uh, the Tudor times and they failed, how is one man going to do it? Oh, don't! it's not going to be one man. Because he's not the only um, former parliamentarian oh, landowner. Yeah, of course, yeah. So there's loads of dispossessed people who are, who are willing to, to come in with him on this, this scheme. Mm. And he figures that really, if they get Dublin Castle, they get Limerick, they get a few key positions, mm. they can use those as bases of operations to, to effectively rule the country from a position of power. Yeah. Yeah. An undertaking on that scale, you can imagine, it takes... Long... That's still going to be a hefty, uh, yeah. That's a big challenge, and it's going to take a lot of planning. You're going to have to, you know, be very careful about who you speak because this is treason. Who you're going to speak to? How you're going to bring people into the fold? You know, surreptitiously getting weapons and resources ready and moving them around the country to where they need to be. It's a logistical nightmare planning a coup without yeah. it coming to light. But Thomas Blood. He was a man who had managed to kill an enemy general by literally going up to him and asking to see him. Yes, yeah. So he figured that 
taking over a country only needed about six months prep. <laughs> They're all in it for the long game, aren't they? I can't even finish a book. You, you think six months is the long game? I'm talking, you know, normally these things take years of careful planning, but he's just gone, ah, I reckon six months will be ready to take over a country. From uh, a standing it... start as well. It wasn't like this, this was a group of people who had, you know, had any history of um, fermenting rebellions or anything. If I couldn't do it in a week, I'd lose interest. I'd be like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Done. The plan, such as it was, was to occupy Dublin Castle and kidnap the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Duke of Ormond. (gasps) Okay. This would be the signal for other plotters to stage uprisings in other major cities around the country, surprising the authorities and allowing them to complete what would hopefully be a relatively bloodless coup. Mm -hmm. They would then make an appeal directly to King Charles II to restore the country to the state it had been in prior to the new act of settlement. So they were it was a protest coup. They were going so to show that they could do it and then say to before. yeah, say to Charles and we'll give you all of this back but you've got to reset the clock for us please if you wouldn't mind. Uh okay, fine. So they just okay. Yeah, it's like we're not we're not, you know, take it all and then go we're not trying to be disloyal. We just needed you to listen to us. Mm. <laughs> and this was the way that we could shout loudly. Yeah. Unfor- this is pre pre UK, isn't it? This so- is pre UK, yeah. Although, you know, they did sort of sound out the Scots to see if they'd like to help give a black eye to the Stuart Kings. Uh, Of course they did. They did, yeah. Um, But as it turned out, it never really got that far. But hold on, the Stuarts were Scottish. Yes, but they'd got all fancy in English, hadn't they? they have forgotten their roots. Yeah, you know, when when, um, James I went down there... He, he never really returned to Scotland, did he? It's true. It's like when you get um, people who uh, are from poorer backgrounds or poorer, like rougher backgrounds who then end up marrying into money and they just create this whole illusion and pretend they were never who they were before mm. and they turn their back. They become even more snobby than the people who were born into it because yeah, they feel they like they have to double the down on the snobbishness. I found a lot of people that um, were who bought their council houses in the 80s are more stuck up than people who have come from money for generations before that. Because you, you don't have to prove anything. If you've come from money for so long, it's New ingrained money. into you that you're better. Yeah. And it, Whereas... that's not linked to your status. You know, you can have people who come from the old families who have not a pot to piss in but they will still act like mm-hmm. a landowner because that's what yeah. they've been bred to be and then you get sharon and dave from down the road who bought their council house in the 1980s and now think they're flash because yeah, they've got a merc yeah and it's in white yeah back to thomas though because unfortunately despite what he thought you can either do a job right or you can do it quickly and by trying to rush the plotters had inadvertently revealed their plans to a number of the king's spies. Specifically, though, a man called Philip Alden. Philip not only warned the authorities of the plot, but provided a literal running commentary. So, after a few Why false are starts... so daft? Just don't say anything to anyone, silly people. Well, this is, this is the thing about doing it quickly. You can't do the same checks as if you do it carefully and yeah. slowly and, you know, sound people out in the proper way. They just like anyone who walked up and went, do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking maybe we should overthrow the government. They'd be like, oh, yeah, come over here into this corner of the pub. We're talking about just that. Here, have a gun. You can be a general in our new army when we've taken over. It was just way too quick. But yeah. he, he was giving the authorities a running commentary. 
So they knew absolutely everything that was happening. They knew when the first date was set. They knew that that got pushed back and they were told the reasons why it was pushed back. It was, you know, blow by blow as the plotters plotted. Yeah. And they were just waiting for the chance. They were like, give them enough rope to hang themselves. Let's wait until the last minute. (laughs) Let's let them do it themselves. So we've got as much incriminating evidence as possible and as many people who may be um, aggrieved at the king are drawn into the plot so that we can arrest them all at once rather than in dribs and drabs. Fair. So the plotters finalised a date for this coup, the 28th of May, 1663. (gasps) And unlike the other dates, this one seemed pretty set in stone. This one seemed like a hard date that they were going to use. You know, they they ironed out all the issues, so we were pretty sure this was going to be it. So the Duke of Ormond finally ordered that all the plotters get arrested. He's like, right, sin enough. It's time to go. Yeah, Yeah. we're done here. The eagle has landed. Go, go, go. (laughs) I I take it they didn't have walkie-talkies at this point. No, no, they just naturally did that. (laughs) Go, go, go. Why did he do that? I don't know. Just felt right. Roger that. Who's Roger? Roger? (laughs) He's another one. They're everywhere. Like the Thomases. It's just Thomases and Rogers out here, sir. Roger Roger. blood. I've been Rogered. (laughs) I made myself laugh. Thomas Blood, though, he managed to escape Dublin and was promptly named at the top of a list of people who were wanted for questioning on a charge of treason. So he is now on the run. He's an outlaw. He's an outlaw. T-Blood. Not so lucky, however, was his brother-in-law, a bloke called William Leckie. Leckie. Poor old William Leckie. It's, Uh, It's a sad tale because, essentially... You know, he found out that his brother-in-law, Thomas Blood, and his family had been kicked out of their uh-huh. family home. They were on yeah. the uppers. And he'd been a good Christian and said, look, and taken them in. you can come and stay with me. <gasps> harboring a fugitive. Well, at first he was just harboring a family member. He was just inviting a family member who'd fallen on hard times into his home. Mm-hmm. But over the six months, Thomas Blood had badgered him and had convinced him to become involved in the conspiracy oh, against his better judgment. Oh, no. So he's been like, staging these secret meetings. And he's like, oh, William, you should get in on this. Come on. You get in on this, you'll be made for life. And he's like, no, Thomas, I, I'm pretending I've not seen this, mate. But eventually <laughs> he's like, okay, okay, fine. I could do with a bit of extra money. You're going to be new king of Ireland. Uh, I'd quite like to have maybe uh, nothing major. You could make me like a, I know, like a duke or... I'll just have some a viceroy, lands. something. Yeah. That'd be great. Lecky was definitely regretting trying to be a good relative when he became one of 24 conspirators seized on the 21st of May 1663. Oh. Especially when he found out that he'd been singled out as one of the first to go on trial. Because okay. the authorities, reasonably, but as it turned out, erroneously, mm-hmm. assumed that as a relative of blood, he had probably played a major role in the organisation of the attempt on Dublin Castle. Yeah. So he's damned by association. Dublin Castle is very nice. I was there last year. Mm. And would you say highly defensible? Uh, It's quite... It's on a very flat bit of ground. Like, it doesn't sit high up like a lot of castles do. Mm. Um, It's got quite thick walls, but um, I don't know. I reckon you could get in there. Well, actually, apparently at the time it was um, quite a sort of tourist destination. 
so the I doors mean, were generally open. And no, the plan they, they was were when I went there. Yeah. Yeah. The plan was for all these people who were going to overthrow the castle to kind of mooch the way in, uh, and then sort of <laughs> oh, surprise from the inside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was trying the same thing again. He was basically going to walk in, ask where the Duke of Ormond was at the, that moment because he had a message mm. for him, and then wander through to find him, and then hold him at gunpoint and go right, put the castle down and move away, and hope yeah. that all the authorities would just leave. Because it was like a barracks as well, I mm. believe, at, at points. And they'd, so. they'd spent some time trying to convince the soldiers in the barracks to join their cause. Mm. And they had managed yeah. to convince a few, apparently. Enough yeah. so that if they had the element of surprise, they might be able to overpower those people who weren't aware of the plan. Yes. Anyway, back to Mr. Leckie and his bad life choices. He was due in court on June 25th, along with three other men. And such was the infamy of the plot that massive crowds gathered outside the court in Dublin to watch the conspirators, the treasonous men, be brought through. Just as Leckie was being led to the dock, a shot was heard outside the doors, and a soldier fell dead. No! Everyone assumed that this was the beginning of an audacious rescue plot by Blood to spring his brother-in-law, and there was mass panic. People were screaming, people were running one way, people were running the other way. It was pandemonium out there. It was just chaos and one reporter noted that lecky was seen to be smiling because he was convinced that he would soon be free he's like he feels so guilty about what he's put me through he's come to get me sadly for him though the shot hadn't been fired by blood or any of the conspirators it had been fired by another soldier called private john fellows who'd gotten a bit overexcited was it a mistake yeah it was a misfire (gasps) He'd accidentally shot someone else dead because it had all been a bit much with the crowds and everything. <laughs> and he hadn't been what? paying attention. What? How do you even do that? It was an accident, sir. Well, I, I don't know how you explain it afterwards. I, I'm sure he was very embarrassed. Poor old I, John I mean, Fellows. I, I would be mortified more than embarrassed. It probably just slunk away. My shift's over. I need to go... Back to the barracks. Yeah, bye now. So, knowing that there was no rescue coming, Leckie did what criminals have been doing since the dawn of time to escape the consequences of their actions. He pretended to go mad. Okay, yeah, fine. Yep. He was asked if he wanted to present any evidence in his defence and he went on a long, rambling tirade about how he'd been possessed by demons, been led astray how he could still hear the demons telling him to do things. He smashed his head onto the uh, rail of the dock. He punched himself in the face. We were pulling his hair out. He went, went for it. It was full on. He's like, he, go hard or go home. He's got trauma. Mm. Or pretending to have trauma to get away with it. Well, the, the I... pre- pretense was good enough because it was decided that Leckie was in no fit state to stand trial. And although he was found guilty in his absence, rather than being executed like the others were, he was locked up in Newgate while they decided what to do with him. Oh, I mean, I don't know what's worse, Newgate prison or bloody execution. Well, considering um, this was treason, so the execution would take the form of being hung, drawn and quartered. Oh, yeah, you don't want that. No. no you, you don't need that in your life. <laughs> well, you don't have it in your life for long. That's the only <laughs> no. oh, God. saving grace of that particular. Yeah, not for me. Lecky remained in Newgate until November 14th. Uh-huh when he escaped by swapping clothes with his wife while she was visiting him and walking out the front door. Amazing. But while he presumably made a convincing woman, 
his parkour skills were sadly lacking. And he somehow managed to get himself stuck on top of a high wall, unable to get down, still dressed in women's clothes. <laughs> They'd be like, he has gone mad, look at him. <laughs> After having what you can assume was a good long laugh, uh, the local constables retrieved him. And on November 18th, he was back before a judge who said that he was very glad that Leckie had recovered from his bout of insanity, as they could now hang him. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't even think he was worth hang, drawing and quartering now. They were just yeah, like, just Look, get it done. Yeah. yeah. You, you've done a silly thing. And we don't want to extend the embarrassment anymore. We're just going to quietly hang you, okay? And you can go and explain to God what you've done. Yeah. You've done bad on yourself, Leckie. You've done bad, sir. His execution took place on December the 12th, 1663. Although it was delayed by another panic that Thomas Blood had arrived to rescue him. Okay. This time it was a couple of horses that had gotten loose and ran through the crowd. But everyone panicked. Even the executioner jumped down from the scaffold in fear, which left Leckie stood awkwardly with a hood over his face and a noose around his neck, wondering what the hell was going on. Because he couldn't see anything. He All he could do was hear screams and people running around going, what the hell is going on here? What the bloody hell's going on? Then he was hung. Blood may That'd have escaped a similar... Was this a way long drop or short drop? This is short drop. This is... Uh, you're going to do a little one. dance. It's strangulation, mm. really, is what it is. It's brutal. It, I mean, is it good that they changed it? Probably. What, to the long drop? Yeah, But definitely. when you're saying that the long drop is the humane thing, we're still not that humane. <laughs> yeah, but it's better than... Yeah. It's better than the other one. It's the slow strangulation. Yeah. Now, Blood himself may have escaped a similar fate, but he was now a fugitive. Yeah. So he couldn't even be with his family. He couldn't even try and build a new life for himself. So he decided to promote himself to Colonel Blood, because why not? Isn't that the title of the book? Yes. Right. He, he was never made a colonel within any recognised army. He just gave himself <laughs> the title Colonel. I'm a colonel. Because so... it's like, well, I'm, I'm an outlaw anyway. I don't think that giving myself a military title I didn't earn is really going to add much to my um, punishment if I'm ever caught because that's pretty Fair. much death anyway. Yeah. So may as well be a colonel. Screw you. Okay. I'm General Blood. <laughs> Emperor Blood. I'm Young Blood. Seeing that the only way he could be reunited with his family beyond the daring visits in disguise that he regularly did uh, and regain his fortune was to actually succeed in a coup. He spent the years between 1664 and 1667 trying again and again. This was in between trips to the continent to try and drum up more support in the Netherlands. Yeah. Overall, Colonel Blood was implicated as having a leading role in planning uprisings in the north of England, Limerick, London, which would include the taking over of the government and execution of the king, Ireland again, because, you know, he he could just rehash the old plans... (laughs) And Scotland. Uh, the boy did good. Well, he, he didn't succeed in any of these. but he Yeah, was, I know, but he had, he had ambition. He, oh, he definitely had ambition. And I admire that. Yeah. He's like, I will take over a country. Mm. At this point, I'm not... <laughs> I, don't, I don't care which one. I don't I'm, know which one it is. Just any of them. Although, to be fair, he never tried to take Wales, which I think the Welsh will feel slightly sad about. It's like, what's wrong with us? Yeah. Well, apparently the north of England... Is more of a country than Wales. Well, Fuck Wales you. and England got merged earlier, uh, earlier, didn't they? By force, <laughs> normally. Um, but even now, it's 
England and Wales sit under one ting and Scotland's always slightly different. Mm. Um, You've just had longer for the assimilation, essentially. Yeah, so than the you have laws, with Scotland. and I suppose because there's a longer borderline as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it will be longer, won't it? Oh yeah, a lot longer. And it's been more fluid for longer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like I say, none of these attempted coups actually got very far. But Blood was so well known as a plotter and villain, based on his various escapades, that when a certain fire broke out in 1666. Many Londoners were convinced that it was the work of Thomas Blood. Oh, really? That's interesting. Fearing that in the days after the fire, he would capitalise on the chaos by trying to implement another revolution. I thought you were going to come out with some groundbreaking stuff and be like, it was him. No, It was no. him that started it. It wasn't Pudding Lane at all. But that's the level of paranoia. People saw a big fire breaking out in London like, it's Blood! He's come back <laughs> for another go! I mean, it's the best name, isn't it, to be like... yeah. To be terrified of him. Oh no! Oh, no. Blood's here, sir. Blood's here. No, nah, no. Do you want to know what he was actually doing at that time? Uh, I don't know. Do I? What was he doing? He was in Essex. <laughs> was he getting a spray tan? No, he was. He was earning some honest coin. He disguised himself as Doctor Asliff. Okay. And was presumably giving very questionable medical advice to the people of Romford. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which is where he based himself. But in mid-1667, Colonel Blood was called into action once again. He had to throw off his disguise. I'm back! He read in the news that a former comrade in his attempt at a rebellion in the north, Captain John Mason, was to be transported from Newgate Prison to York for trial. Okay. A trial that would almost certainly lead to his execution. Okay. Now, Blood was apparently more fond of John Mason than he had been of his own brother-in-law. Because this time he decided he would try a daring rescue. God, they're so brave, aren't they? I'm such a coward. He gathered himself a posse of between 8 and 12 men and set off behind the troops escorting Mason on July 20th, waiting for an opportunity to stage an ambush. They had found the perfect spot on the evening of the 24th and were waiting for the transport to pass by. But the man who was acting as lookout he got a little bit sleepy. Uh, and he didn't alert the others in time for them to stage the rescue. You so, had one job. Yeah, you are the lookout. <laughs> All you need to do is tell us when horses are coming up. And he's, he just fell asleep in the saddle. Oh, no. And he woke up and he could see them in the distance. They'd already passed. He's like, oh, shit. God damn it. <laughs> Dejected, Blood urged his men up the road. But they feared that they had missed their chance. And on the evening of the 25th of July... They gave up the chase and went into a coaching inn in a town called Darrington to have a few consolation pints before heading back to London. Okay, I think that's fair. The first round had just been bought and delivered to the table when, to Blood's amazement, the convoy of troops guarding Mason came into the inn for a spot of food. Mm-hmm. They nice. were ready for their dindins and they came into just the same inn where Blood and his posse were. Oh no! <laughs> Blood waited for them to finish eating and was delighted to find that only five of the seven soldiers left immediately with Mason. The other two, who hadn't quite finished their ale, said that they'd catch up a little ways down the road. Don't worry, Uh we'll be fine. Blood waited for these two soldiers to leave before rushing up to his horse and saddling up. In his haste to catch up with the two guards, though, he didn't notice that the groom in the stable had loosened his saddle a little. 
to give the on horse. Purpose. Yeah, yeah, because he was sort of trying to make the horse more comfortable. He'd yeah. loosen the saddle. Oh, did he fall off? Oh, Not no. immediately. Blood... <laughs> Blood and one of his companions rode to either side of the soldiers, the two who were, you know, a little bit slow. And yeah. they started a conversation, started having a chat. Then, without warning, they grabbed the reins of the soldiers' horses and forced the two soldiers to dismount. When they were on the ground, they gave each horse a good smack on the bum so that it ran off, which left only five guards with Mason that they would have to overcome. So they'd already managed to take out two of the guards. No blood had been spilled. You know, the other guys hadn't been alerted. This was perfect. Yeah. The posse caught up to the guards and confronted them. And soon there was a running battle, complete with pistols firing and swords clashing. Okay. The guards at some point had picked up a lone traveller on the road, a barber from York, who had asked if he could ride with them for protection because he was worried about getting into some difficulties. Okay. It turned out to be a bad move because now he's in the middle of a running battle. And for some reason best known to himself, rather than just ride off from a battle that clearly didn't concern him, as far away as possible, he decided he'd join in. (laughs) <laughs> he whipped out his sword, which he probably never used before, and started waving it about over his head. And naturally, he was the first person to die. Oh. He so got he was it. just caught up, yeah. surely, by... He'd, he'd asked to ride with them, because time. being in a larger group dissuaded um, you know, bandits on the road. Yes. And he's like... And I guess, is this... Hold on, what era are we in? Uh, this is... We're, well, we're in the uh, Stuart era. Oh, this so we're, is, coming, we're coming into highwaymen territory, There are plenty we, of highwaymen at the, the moment, Georgians? The Georgians. Yeah, we're getting Speak towards... properly. High ro- highwaymen are patrolling the roads, and he was like, these guys are going to York, I'm going to York, I'll just saddle up with them, I'll get and there I'll nice and safe. Yeah. And obviously he felt he built up some kind of bond or camaraderie with them, because mm. pistols start firing, swords start going, and he just jumps in to protect his newfound friends. I just want to be one of the lads. And he caught a bullet almost immediately, and down he went. <sighs> Blood, meanwhile, was having decidedly mixed fortunes of his own. On the one hand, he had shouted to Mason to make his escape and was gratified to see his friend quickly becoming a dot on the horizon so that the rescue attempt had worked. Mason was now out of the clutches of the authorities. On the other hand, due to the girth of his saddle being loose, he fell off his horse three times during the battle. Oh, no. Finally deciding to abandon the damn thing altogether and fight on foot. I do feel sorry for the horses in all conflicts. Mm. They just take a battering, don't they? Well, they don't, they don't know what's going on until it starts happening. Oh, but it must be terrifying. The poor horses. Oh, yeah. And you read very, you know, in lots of these, especially sort of like um, the Napoleonic Wars, where it's like, and the general had four horses shot out from under him, and then he, you know, saddled up on a fifth, and you're like, well, that's I, a I, lot of dead horses I in a single battle. that's what... You would go for, wouldn't you? If somebody's charging at you, a horse, you want to get rid of the The, the horse, fast the advantage, thing. yeah. Yeah. Well, it is a, ma- a massive advantage to be on horseback, which of course put blood at a massive disadvantage against the mounted guards. He was shot five times. And to add insult to injury, one of the guards then lobbed his empty pistol at blood and caught him full in the face, <laughs> knocking him to the ground. God. So imagine you're struggling on with five gunshot wounds <laughs> and then someone just throws a gun at you. <laughs> going, ow! Now, oh, that really hurt. Blood would surely have died if Mason had not at that moment returned to help his friend. 
the two managed to subdue the two guards they were fighting and make good their escape. So he'd ridden off originally Mason and then he got, no, they need me. I can't abandon them. And he turned around, came back and saved Blood. So Blood set out to save Mason, but they saved each other's lives and called it a wash. Very nice. And amazingly, despite all the pistols firing, but despite the swords being waved around, the only death from the 20 man mounted pistol melee was the barber. <laughs> Everyone oh, else survived. The poor survived. guy that wasn't even meant to be there. Yeah, of course he was. Sod's law. That oh. guy was the only guy who was going to die in this. The guy who had no idea why they were fighting. He didn't know he was being, you know, escorted up the road with be, a criminal. As a barber, he'd be good with, like, scissors and stuff. And obviously barbers used to be surgeons and stuff at the same time, way back when. Um, you'd quite often have barbers. I that mean, that's still, it's quite up close and personal, and isn't it? I don't think I don't think being able to wield a, a cutthroat razor necessarily means you're going to be good with a sabre when it comes know. to it. I've got a question for you, mm-hmm. uh, and I want your first answer. Okay. Uh, if there was a royalist and parliamentarian battle today, which side would you be on? Conscientious objector. Oh, Boom, okay. always have been. Fine. I'm not getting involved in the wars of petty men. <laughs> I say no, good sir. Yes. But without a doubt... Despite all of these things he's done to this point, Blood's most infamous year would begin on December the 6th, 1670. So what? Sorry, his... His most infamous it's, year. It's not It's not happened already. No, no, no. This was all a build-up. This is... <laughs> this was him warming up. This was him flexing, getting okay. himself stretched. Yeah. He's, he's ready for the to make his big play now. He's ready to go. And it began on December 6th, 1670. Because this was the day... He tried to kidnap the former Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the man responsible for the forfeiture of his lands and the death of his brother-in-law, the now 60-year-old Duke de Ormond. Okay. The Duke had been attending a banquet at the Guild Hall of the Corporation of the City of London and was on his way home at around 7pm when his... It's very nice there. Oh, it's the oldest town hall in the country, isn't it? The it's beautiful, in and it sits on top of an old um, where the Roman Colosseum was in London. Oh, wow! Sort of facts for you there. When you go there to the square, they've got um, uh, it's all paved, but then they've got this line, this outline of where the Colosseum would have sat. Ah, fantastic! Mm. With some handy sort of um, plaques that would describe. Oh yes, what you there's a seen. plaque. Good. Yeah. It's got to be a good plaque. Is it plastic sort of plaque, or is it a proper sort of embossed? Uh, oh, I think it's embossed. It's Ooh. only the best. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the city London. of London. They've got the money, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. So, yes, he'd been attending uh, a lovely banquet. It was actually a banquet for William of Orange. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, fine. Because, you know, he, he hadn't been offered the, the throne at this point. Uh, he was on his way home around 7pm when the coach was stopped on the cobbles, a stone's throw from St. James's Palace. So we're right yeah. in the centre of London here. Th- this isn't blood waiting until... The Duke of Ormond is, you know, on some lonely road, travelling between... Yeah, this is the middle of London. St. James's Palace, or what's left of it, mm. is very sexy. It's um Tudor brick building. There we go. Sexy buildings with Ollie, mm. with Ollie Green. The guards were scattered with the threat of being shot in the face. <laughs> and Blood's accomplices dragged the Duke from his coach, tied his hands and pinned a note to his coat which explained the reason for his kidnap and execution. 
thought you were going to say to his face. I was like, what? No, no, really? although Blood, I think, because he was still smarting from having a pistol thrown in his face, he did threaten to pistol whip the Duke if he didn't play ball. It's a song by Marilyn Manson called Pistol Whipped. Mm, well, I think he got the idea from Thomas Blood. Yeah. The original gangster with the pistol whip. Just bang! He didn't actually pistol whip Ormond because he had to ride off to get preparations made. Did Blood. Now that they had the Duke of Ormond, he had to go a little ways down the road to a place that you may know called Tyburn. Oh, yes, the infamous. He was going to the tree to make sure that there was a noose all ready for the Duke, leaving his gang, including his son, Thomas Jr. Jr., to bring the Duke of Ormond up behind. So his plan, as far as it was, was to make a political statement about the robbery of his lands by hanging the Duke of Ormond, who'd authorised it, like a common criminal from the Tyburn tree. So he's making a statement. Yeah. Leaving his gang to transport the Duke, though, turned out to be an error, especially because they'd pinned a note to the Duke, which he'd managed to read, which explained that he was about to be hung at Tyburn tree. (laughs) So if they'd have just let him believe that he was being kidnapped to ransom, he Hmm. might have been a more um, agreeable hostage. But he could literally see that he had maybe five, ten minutes of riding and, and then it. he was going to be strung up like a common yeah. criminal. So he started fighting on the back of that horse and he fought hard. Yeah, of course you would. He had old man strength. He had sinewy strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would be raging. He was on the back of uh, a horse of a man called Hunt uh, and yeah. he fought so hard that both he and Hunt fell off the horse. Yeah. He was thrown okay. to the ground. He was able to escape in the confusion... And luckily for him, it was so dark that when they were firing at where they thought he was, every single bullet missed, and he managed to return to his house. Battered, bruised, but alive. Hmm. Of course, this was all very dramatic, but Thomas Blood knew nothing about it. He was still waiting patiently at the gallows at Tyburn, Hmm. wondering what the hell was taking them so long. (laughs) He's like, I got him, we got rid of his guards, we tied him up, we put him on the back of a horse. They should be here. Well, St. James's Palace is really near to Tyburn. Yeah, he's just stood there going, what the hell is taking them? And then, of course, they probably rode up and they were like, we're going to have to leave, Thomas, because... Through Green Park and Hyde Park, but we'll we'll get there. We're going to have to run away now because, unfortunately, he's made it home and he has a a note on him that that says exactly what we were planning to do and where. (laughs) So they're probably going to be sending people to Tyburn now if we don't leave. So he was a bit pissed off. Yeah. He didn't take the news well at all, in fact. And he decided that the only way that he could get over the loss of his symbolic revenge that he'd he'd planned out Mm -hmm. was to come up with a plan to take an even greater symbolic revenge. Oh, my God. Who's he going for? Oh, he's not going... It's not a who. It's a what. What is he going for? In April 1671, Thomas Blood entered the grounds of the Tower of London, dressed as a priest... And wearing a false beard, because... Crown, crown jewels. Ooh, is that what's kept there? Yes. No, he's going to break everyone out of the tower. Ah, no, he's okay. going for the crown jewels. Ah! <laughs> but uh, he's only going to view them at this point. You made me question my history knowledge there. <laughs> Never he, do that again. He dressed as a priest so that he could go and view the crown jewels. He also had a female accomplice with him, who was posing as his wife. While in the grounds approaching the Martin Tower where the crown jewels had been kept, his wife faked an illness 
and the elderly keeper of the crown jewels, Talbot Edwards, and his wife, stepped in to offer assistance. Get her a cold compress. Yeah, get her some fruit. Maybe it's scurvy. The Edwards lived in the tower above where the crown jewels were stored, Mm -hmm. and they offered food and a warm fire to help the fake wife recover herself. So they brought her in, took her upstairs. Oh, me darling, oh, you've had a bit of a fainting spell. Don't worry, we'll look after you. (laughs) Blood and his fake wife, they thanked they thanked the Edwards for their the hospitality and their kindness, and they, they left without viewing the crown jewels. But over the next few weeks, Blood returned on several occasions to give gifts of thanks from himself and his wife for the care that the Edwards had uh, provided. And they got to talking, and they got to, you know, sharing stories, and sort of struck up a bit of a friendship. Hmm. Was, yeah, we're all right. And it was during one of these visits, now that they were... You know, old buds, familiar friends. Yeah, they were pals. Blood yeah. mentioned that his rich nephew was looking to wed and that Edward's daughter, Elizabeth, might make an agreeable match. He added that, um, as as well as the, you know, the, the nephew, it came with um, a land and titles that would be entitling them to £200 or so a year yeah. uh, income. So there was, you know, it wasn't just for young love or potential young love, it was... Uh, Came with a, a financial benefit. And the Edwards, they couldn't believe their luck. Then as now, people working in what was essentially public services were chronically underpaid. So an yeah. opportunity to marry into relative wealth and comfort was too go good f- a chance to pass mm, up for their daughter. You'd go for it, wouldn't you? They wanted her to, to improve her station, and this was the, a fortuitous coming together that would allow yeah. them to achieve that. This is why they agreed that a meeting between the two should take place on May 9th, at the decidedly odd time of 7am, <laughs> introducing I mean, the young couple to wh- each other. Wh- where, what time of the year was this? Uh, this Did was May. So, oh, I suppose it's quite nice. Spring. It's quite nice, but still 7am. When, when, when will you introduce your nephew to our daughter? Oh, well, he's an early riser. Let's say 7am before most people are awake, when there are less witnesses, <laughs> should we say then? Um, it's got to be quieter okay. on the streets, that do yeah. you? Blood arrived with three men and said his wife was running late, so could they delay the introductions? Yeah. But while they waited, would Talbot mind showing Blood's friends the crown jewels? Because he okay. hadn't seen them the first time, and, you know, they're all friends, and it's a happy occasion. Why don't we go and have a look at the bling-bling? Yeah. The sparkle-sparkle. Mm. Talbot Edwards agreed, and while he was unlocking the door, Blood and his accomplices threw a cloak over his head, gagged him, and tied him up. Just, I like not that I like that what they've done, but they they're in it for the long game. Like, oh yeah, he d- he did a bit this. more prep this time. Yeah, he'd even checked and made sure that the um, Edwards's son uh, was away at war. He was away um, fighting, so they're there was nobody. Daft, are they? There was nobody, you know, fit and healthy to to protect them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, no, they're not stupid at all. And Thomas Blood, he was he was trying to do all of this as painlessly as possible, and he explained that if Talbot just kept quiet, he'd come to no harm. Just lie there, let us do what we're doing, and you'll you'll go about your day. A bit bruised, maybe, but you'll be fine. Talbot considered this carefully, and decided to make as much noise as he possibly could, shouting and screaming through the gag, trying to raise some kind of alarm. Yeah, and he kept doing this until one of the robbers decided it was necessary to stab him in the stomach. Okay. Meanwhile, upstairs, Talbot's daughter was still waiting to be summoned from her bedroom to meet her new husband. So she still thinks, I'm, "Oh yeah, what's going on? Uh, yeah. I'm going to meet the love of my life, or whatever." 
they did have a lookout out in the uh, courtyard and apparently uh, one of uh, her friends who was with her, Elizabeth, looked out and said, oh, I think I can see your fiancé. And Elizabeth asked, well, what does he look like? And they both agreed that he was a rather dashing fellow and that she was very, very lucky that she was going to be made such a great match. It was at this exact moment, though, that Talbot Edward's son returned from the war. Okay. Oh, no. So he rocked up. I'm saying, oh, no, I don't know whose side I'm on at the moment. He rocked up at like (laughs) ten past seven on a random May morning when it just so happened his father was being robbed and stabbed. That was the moment at which he walked back into the Tower of London. (sighs) Bizarre. The lookout rushed to warm blood and his accomplices who had to abandon the scepter that they were trying to cut in two because they didn't have enough time. The gang fled, but Talbot was able to struggle out of the building and raise the alarm, holding his sword wound to the chest, and he actually survived his stab wound. Uh, so okay. they, they kind of left him for dead, um, yeah. which is why he was able to slowly crawl up the stairs and raise the alarm because they, they thought, oh, we don't need to worry about him anymore. But yeah. he, did, he just wouldn't die, Talbot. He was an old... <laughs> codger but he was tough as boots you better die so the alarm was raised and thomas blood was eventually caught by a former soldier called martin beckman just outside of the bloody tower okay but only after blood had shot at his face and missed i don't know why i'm laughing it's not funny so a, a series of things if the sun hadn't come back they'd have got away with it if the stab wound to tolbert had actually killed him they'd have got away with it. If this bullet had connected with Martin Beckman's face, blood would have got away with it. But everything was conspiring against him that day. He just The universe did not want him to get away with the crown jewels. There's so much to this story. It's in, I feel like we've gone here, there and everywhere. And, that, and it's just all very dramatic. I love it. Thank you for reading the book. <laughs> the, the fun thing about it is, having tried to shoot this guy in the face and missed and been taken into custody... Blood was quite circumspect about it all. Apparently, his reaction was to say, it was a gallant attempt, however unsuccessful. But it was for a crown. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so guess, I, I suppose I, you can't get any better than that. Yeah, it's like, you? I tried and failed, but look at what I was trying, mate. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? That I got this far. Woo-hey. He was placed in the cells of the Tower of London to await his fate. Though he did insist that he would only submit to the questioning of King Charles II himself. Okay. So like, I will answer questions, but only if From the King, king Charles II asks them. Mm-hmm. And this was the last King Charles until today. Mm. And amazingly, Charles apparently found this very amusing and agreed to see him. Okay. During the meeting, Blood admitted to all of his crimes justifying them by saying that his incomes had been unfairly taken from him and that he was only seeking to restore what was his. Yeah. He also added that there were hundreds of others like him who were at that very moment probably plotting to overthrow the government. Now, sensing that there was probably... Some overthrow the government or the king? Well, they're one in the same at this point in history, oh, okay, aren't they? Fine. So over- yeah. overthrow the established order. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sensing that there was a subtext to the comment, Charles asked Blood directly, what if I were to give you your life? Blood replied that he would seek to deserve it, which was basically an agreement to work for Charles as a spy, if he spared him. Uh, okay. So, 
On August the 1st, 1671, after nearly a decade as one of the most wanted men in the kingdom, Colonel Thomas Blood received a full pardon, grants of land in Ireland, and a yearly pension from the king himself of £100. So it's all come full circle. Yep. He's, He's back in, in the favour of a King Charles. The Bloods are back in the favour of a King Charles. So he's basically, he's, he's started, he's, he's left off where he started as a royalist, yep. uh, well, uh, the family, like a royalist yep. family and... He's basically had a crazy 20 years and now he's... <laughs> it's quite a short space of time, yeah. isn't it, for all of that to happen as well. He's, he's, he's lived a life in those 20 years, definitely. That's so funny. But even though he's, he was hired specifically, he was told, you know, I'll give you your life, but you have to spy for me. Yeah. He wasn't really up for the spying lark. Thomas Blood bought the most gaudy clothes he could, the most extravagant wigs. So, so he stood out like a sore Yeah, thumb. and started parading about in London high society, reveling in the fact that he had the King's pardon and the King's Me favor. and Charlie too are pals. Yeah, and he would regularly dine with like the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was... Loud and proud, he was going to the latest theatre things. Thomas Blood was everywhere. He was not being quiet, he was not being sneaky. That's so funny. But maybe that was the point. Yeah. Because it seemed like what the king was doing was he was using Blood to make a point to all the other would-be plotters. If you agree to stop plotting and you ask for my favour and my forgiveness, I'll see you right. Yeah. You know, Look at yeah, Thomas yeah, yeah, Blood, yeah. look at what he did. And because he asked for forgiveness... And because he decided that he wanted to, you know, accept me as his king, look at how he's doing now. He was the example of what you could do if you would just give up on the plotting. Yeah, and then you accepted that's where the country was going and that you needed to be loyal. And definitely at the start, what Blood was doing was he was going and meeting with his old associates and basically saying, look, it's great on this side of the fence, come on. Rather than trying to get these schemes off the ground that are never going anywhere, look, we've been trying for a decade, we've got nowhere, why don't we just accept a little bit of, you know, comfort in our retirement, in our older age? Yeah. You're not, you're not going to be able to keep doing this forever, and do you want to die of hanging, drawing and quartering, or do you want to die in your own bed? Come on, guys. Come in, the water's lovely. Look at me. <laughs> Come into the circle. Have you seen the size of my wig? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what more can you want? It's got nits and everything. Prob- it's got lice. Problem was, though, Blood was a man who couldn't resist an intrigue himself. He What's he, he done now? What's he going to do? He got oh. so involved in the world of, you know, spies, um, plots es- and schemes. Espionage. He almost got drawn into a couple more coup attempts. <laughs> he just can't help himself, yeah. can he? And he was having serious conversations before he kind of caught himself or his, sp- you know, the, the handlers that he had went... <laughs> Well, Thomas, you do realise we this. know what you're doing, right? We're going to advise against it, Thomas, please. <laughs> the thing is, he's like, like, he's done well. Yeah. It could have gone very badly for him a few times and his family. Mm. Um, and although there's been some trauma and drama, he's come out of it pretty well. Yeah, but it's it's hard hard to give up that kind of life. And what he eventually um, did yeah. was he segued from um, coup attempts to getting involved in court intrigues and the the internal politicking of court. And he became ah, a bit of a power broker. So okay. at one point, um, the king uh, was agreeing that um, basically it was an act that said that so long as you asked for um, permits, 
you could arrange religious services outside of the Church of England. Ah, okay. So it's the act of indulgence, I think it was. Um, right. And blood started going out to these places that might want to have uh, licenses for certain preachers and for certain locations, and he agreed to get the licenses for a small fee, even though oh, they yeah. were free. So he was basically acting as a middleman where no middleman was needed. <laughs> and, you know, making a bit of money that way. He was involved in sort of trying to promote various um, interests at court over various other people. So, you know, as all of the lords and ladies fought for position, he was getting involved in that. It was the only way he could scratch his itch without um, putting, you know, his the favour of the king at risk, basically. He's a sneaky, sly dog. Now, I like him. Mm. <laughs> I like his determination. Um, and it, it worked out well for him for for yeah. a decade. He managed to stay afloat in the choppy, shark-infested waters of court life. Yeah. So what happened to him? Well, you see, in 1679, he was involved in a plot um, to frame the Duke of Buckingham Mm -hmm. uh, on the charge of sodomy. But it's not what you think. It was sodomy with a woman. Because at this time, the act of putting anything up a bottom was considered a crime. For whatever reason. Yeah. Unfortunately, people are so weird, aren't they? Like, so, why, why do you care what other people do? Like, well, some of the witnesses that Blood had um, managed to find—that's yeah. heavily in quotation fingers—find uh, to implicate the Duke of Buckingham. They actually confessed that it was all a ruse; that they'd been put up to it by Blood, uh, and he was um, sued by the Duke of Buckingham. Basically, for slander. For, for slander and defamation. You I know, love that word. Slander and defamation and all that is rudeness. Slander. He was ordered to pay damages, blood, to the tune of £10,000 in then money. <sighs> Bear in mind, his pension, his yearly pension, is £100, and the incomes from his properties in Ireland are about 500 That is a lot of money. Well, yeah, it's like 15 years' worth of his income in one go. And he's 62 at this point. So he had no way of raising this cash. No. The now ageing Colonel Thomas Blood, realising that he no longer had the anti-establishment contacts, the strength or the willpower to go on the run again, decided instead to literally lay down and die. He spent two weeks in his bed in his house on Tufton Street in London, a street that nothing interesting has ever happened on since what street tufton street what happens on tufton street that's where all of the um think tanks the far right think tanks are oh is it no i didn't know that 55 tufton street all of these all these people who get invited on as in independent experts who are uh-huh. all uh, heavily funded by people with vested interests and won't say who funds them um oh. because if you're a, a completely independent uh, you know, non-political entity who's just supposed to give impartial advice. Of course, you'd hide who who funds you. That's not suspicious at all. Anyway, a couple of hundred years before that, Thomas Blood, he's lying on his bed in his house in Tufton Street, dying. He spent two weeks dying, which gave him the time to say goodbye to all of his friends and former comrades and to write his will uh, and get it signed and countersigned and make sure that it was all going through before he finally died on August the 24th, 1680. Aww. But of I'm course... That's really sad. That's not the end of the story. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and he rose from the dead. 
he was infamous as a guy who would go on the lam, as a guy who couldn't be caught. So, of course, seeing that he died shortly after being saddled with a £10,000 debt, people naturally assumed that the death was a con and that he'd sailed to the continent to escape. (laughs) Please tell me it's true. Rumours got so rife that after a week or so, the authorities relented and agreed to dig up his coffin to confirm that he was in it. No. But the body inside... Because this was the middle of summer, don't forget. Yeah. Uh, was already so rotten and bloated that despite the fact they got 23 people who'd known him well to act as witnesses, none of them could confirm that the body definitely belonged to Thomas Blood. This is insane. I love it. So when they reburied the body, it was with an open verdict that they had not confirmed that it was Thomas Blood. Oh my god! I would have, I would love if they discovered that he was actually somewhere else, like for years until he was like a hundred, like swindling, yeah, people. The source for this episode, graciously provided by Ollie from his bookshelf, mm, stolen. The audacious, <laughs> the audacious crimes of Colonel Blood, the spy who stole the crown jewels and became the king's secret agent by Robert Hutchinson. Which now, even though I will be returning it to you, Ollie, no, I definitely no, no, you will. Can, you can have it. You will not have to read unless you really want to, because you know the story. I do Everything know the story. around that is the context of the period, all the plots that were going on, a lot more into the other plotters and their motivations, a lot more about the um, the spies that were infiltrating uh, the various plots as well. It's, it's it sounds like a brilliant, thrilling read. It's one of those you, you keep going no. No, that now it's got ridiculous, and then and another, another fact. So no, now it's now it's really ridiculous. I was in the library the other day because we support people to the library quite a lot for the computers and stuff, mm. um, and I saw this book that caught my eye called Glasgow: The Real Mean City. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. You sent me a picture. And um, do you know what I like about it as well? Because. I'm not one of these people. I don't like faff. I don't like nonsense. I don't like description. Like, just tell me the facts and get it done. Like, I don't want to know the 20 different brown shades of a tree in the woods. Like, I don't care. Mm. Just tell me what happened. Tell me who got murdered, when they got murdered, how it happened. And a grisly description of the night. And a, it's Not even that. I don't even necessarily want to grizzly description i just want he was stabbed in the neck dead done um and the the good thing about this book is it's set up into loads it's loads of little stories like loads of little snippets almost like it could be a um like a newspaper article thing so yeah like i think every sort of story is like maybe a page or a page and a half long and i'm smashing through it because how many pages are there in this uh hold on i've got it in my hand as we speak it is 253 pages. So it's 253 moment. individual stories of grizzly well, murder. Well, no, in not always. I mean, some of them are a little <laughs> bit. Some of them are a little bit longer than others. But um, <coughs> it's good for me because I'm like, oh right, that story is concluded in a page or two, um, and now I can move on to the next grizzly. Thing. So it's the book version of TikTok. It only has to hold, hold your attention for a minute or two, and then it's like, good, that's that done. But I mean, I was always like that, even at school when I read a book, like reading like Charles Dickens or Shakespeare or something, I was like, oh God, just get on with it. 
Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.